Welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Kev Gozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How's life treating you this week? Well, I seem to be very stuck in one time period and not jumping through one to the other, so I think I'm doing pretty well. Oh, well, that's good to hear. Well, this week we are returning to the Eighth Doctor adventure, so we're kicking off the second season of Paul McGann and Sheridan Smith, and we are going to be covering Dead London and, for our sins, Max Warp. But let's begin with Dead London. So, uh, Kev, would you give us a usual summary, please? Sure. The Doctor and Lucy are separated um, while Lucy goes on a shopping trip, and the Doctor is strung up for traffic violations, and they are thrown into different time periods. The Doctor initially into the, I believe they say, 17th century, Charlie into World War I. As they both encounter different dangers of that era, they realize that things sort of cross and mix, match as three different time periods. The Doctor figures out that they are both in the mind of the Sepulcher, a hive-mind alien that is messing about with time by keeping humans inside of its brain as a sort of exhibition site. Uh, and they stop it and escape. It's not much that happens in the story. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, excellent. Good. Fine. Um, so, well, what did you think of this one? It's, uh, we're dealing with two stories this week that are both kind of a lot of nothing, but this one is much more charming than the other. This one, it is, it's nice. There's like a lot of great little scenes in this very straightforward, not much to do story. But yeah, I think everything the Doctor does is very fun. Everything Lucy has is very fun. There's a couple of great characters we run into. And yeah, it's overall just, yeah, just charming. It's very hard to talk about this story because it doesn't really do anything spectacular. It doesn't really do anything wrong either. No, I think that's probably a pretty good summary of it. I mean, it, obviously this is the first story in Paul McGann's second sort of season now that he's been taken out of the main range. And it kind of does what you want, I guess, from a first uh, episode of a season sort of perspective. So, you know, there's a little bit of character work and there's some time travel shenanigans and there's a bit of plot going on and there's an improbable alien and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all fine. It's it's solidly entertaining. I think it does a, a good job at being able to um, kick off the second season. And as a season opener, it kind of... It covers a lot of what's going to going to be, you know, the the kind of highlights or, or kind of the the, the tick boxes of, of what's coming up for the rest of the the season. So I think it's I think it's fine. But um, beyond sort of being able to say that it, it does what it does competently, I don't know what else I don't, I don't really know what else to say about it. That sounds more condemnatory than I mean it to. Oh, it's competent. Um. Yeah, it is, but it's also just fun. It's it's an enjoyable way to spend sort of fifty minutes or whatever. Um, you know, listening to these uh, listening to these characters. Yeah, I think we have sort of two bigger characters in the story besides obviously the Doctor and Lucy, and um, I think it's best to sort of talk about them because they get a lot of screen time. And one is, one is the Sepulchre itself, which has all these sort of guises and voices. He plays both judges. He plays like the, the hangman. And also then the creepy alien voice. It's the true form. But yeah, it's uh, Rupert Vansittart. I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> as uh, the voice here. And he does like a great job. There's like a lot of different range 
to those sort of voices and it's always very sort of entertaining yeah it is it's, it's one of those um one of those parts you could easily imagine that they would get like uh not an impressionist that's not quite the right thing but yeah it's just it's somebody who can do like a, a lot of voices um and sort of make them sound relatively distinctive and because the characters are all sort of fairly different you know you've got the blackout killer like you mentioned the judge all these mm. other kind of um sort of uh, characters um it it all kind of comes together and rupert uh uh and i'm gonna try and get this right <laughs> Van Sittart? Van Sittart? I apologize for my terrible, terrible pronunciations. But anyway, him does a very good job of um, of kind of keeping all these characters separate, being able to, uh, you know, get them to all work. So it's, um, again, it's it's not really necessarily reinventing the wheel, but it's, it's nice. It's well done. Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking up the writer, Pat Mills, not a big Finnish regular, only did two other audio stories. Yeah, it's... And you wonder why they didn't bring him back. I mean, I guess none of those stories are like, wow, but this one's at least like very like competently written. Like I get, <laughs> it feels like damn with faint praise, but yeah, it's, it's, it hits all the basics very strongly. And yeah, having that fun villain presence is definitely part of it. And yeah, there's just a lot of, it just very, it just moves so well scene to scene. Listeners may be able to gather that we're already starting to struggle a little bit. Um, I, I want to chime, I want to chime in and agree with, with what you said about Pat Mills. That um, like we have had so much worse like first stories than than this one. I don't know what the reason is that that uh, Pat Mills has only really done like a couple of stories and then uh, a handful of um, adaptations. So it's a bit it's a bit peculiar, but it um it. This, this is good. I'm going to stop using the word competent because it, it just does sound like an insult. But um, like Spring-Heeled Sophie is like a, quite a vivid yes. character. This this kind of tightrope walker. Um, and there's a real love, I think, of um, little uh, sort of detailing in the script. So things like the Systemistica, um, uh, that's a lovely kind of word, apart from what the thing, the object itself is, this kind of snake box. It's a lovely little word, Spring-Heeled Sophie. I mean, obviously uh, from Spring-Heeled Jack, but it's still, it's a nice kind of little play there. Uh, Sepulcher is a nice word. There's a way that kind of language, I think, is being used by Pat Mills that does, it does just add that kind of little something or other. It's, again, it's not innovative necessarily, but there is a love of these little details. Um, and like having, having Spring-Heeled Sophie be like a tightrope walker, and that's kind of her her way to sort of be, um, you know, a bit of a cat burglar or whatever, uh, but not falling back and kind of quite those cliches. It's just a nice little kind of touch. And yeah, like the Systemistica is, is a lovely kind of little, uh, you know, a detail from kind of Roman times. It's, it's, a, it's a very um, detailed kind of world, which is built up, I guess, across these time periods and in, in a sort of fairly compressed yeah, I said, I think this is 15 minutes long, roughly. So it's a pretty compressed period, to, or running time, I should say, to get all these kind of little nice details in. But but Pat Mills does a really good job of it. Yeah, and then you have the alien names, the Quagrig, that is just like such a great, rolls off the tongue. And a bit yeah. explicit with the language where the doctor can like get answers out of him by speaking in his tongue, which I thought was like another great detail. Like all these little historical things that uh, really they just are peppered into the script they give it a lot of texture uh, all the world war one stuff about like yellow like canaries working munitions factories and things like that that just 
like make it pop just a little bit more. Yeah, texture is a very nice word for it. I think that's that's exactly what it has. It has uh, texture to all these sort of little time zones, and a lot of them are using kind of familiar uh, shortcuts to establish some of the time periods, which is absolutely fine because you have a very compressed running time here. So there's only so much that you uh, you can get in, especially if you're dealing with sort of four or five different time periods as we are here. And I think the way that um, those time periods are, are sort of detailed works, uh, but it also makes me kind of wish that this was longer, that it was a sort of main range story, because I think this is really, a, a, you know, a, a, a well-constructed uh, story. Um, but because we have all these little details, because there's the attention to detail, uh, and because the characters spark so nicely, um, there is a sense that it could stand to be longer. It doesn't necessarily have to be a four-parter, um, but it could it could easily have another sort of 20 or 30 minutes in the running time. So we have, you know, the opportunity to dig in to these sort of different time periods. And um, like the sci-fi explanation at the end where, you know, the mind is bigger than the inside is a bit, it's not the best ending I've ever heard of in my life. But, it, you know, it, it works in a sort of Doctor who sort of way, so that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, like little details like the Wicker Man and things like that, you know, they, 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 they kind of come and go so quickly, you barely have time to have them register, uh, you know, before we slid on to something else. And some of those could, could I think, definitely have stood um, a little bit of expansion. Yeah, I completely agree. I think this is a story... We talked a little bit before off mic how this could have been a four-part story, and I completely agree. Um, you wish this was on the main range or something like that, just to sort of give it a little, that little extra fleshing out. Because, uh, yeah, I think that's the big problem with the story is it's only 50 minutes. So on one hand, we want to praise it being fleet and compact and not overstaying its welcome, but this one could have stayed its welcome a little longer. It, there's just not much to it beyond some good performances and a lot of good details in a story that moves at a brisk pace. Yeah, and I think the fleetness of foot uh, does... Maybe, maybe, it is, maybe it's flattering to deceive. Maybe because it moves so quickly, it makes us want more. Uh, but maybe if we had more, we would be sitting here complaining that it takes too long to get to the point. So, um, I don't know. I don't, it's not always easy to strike those, um, strike those balances. But uh, I think... Everything here just kind of works. And um, I mean, we haven't talked about Paul McGann or Sheridan Smith, so I guess we better do that in order to spend more than 10, 10 minutes in this one. Um, and they're great. Yeah. What a surprise. Um, you know, they're lovely. It's, it, it's so nice to hear Paul McGann again. Um, it feels like a while. And uh, I think what really comes through in this one, more than the other story that we're going to be tackling this week, um, is you can just hear how enthusiastic he is mm-hmm. about this role. He loves playing the Doctor, and it just radiates out of the speakers. You know, you can't help but be... Oh, I can't help but be charmed by it. Sorry, I don't want to put words in your mind. Uh, but he's, he's so charming. Um, and, you know, this isn't really a high-stakes adventure. Like I know we're supposed to believe that all these people could potentially die, and etc. Cetera, et cetera. It's not really a high-stakes adventure. And the Doctor kind of breezes through it in a way that's kind of slightly uh it's almost kind of mid-period tom baker in the way that he just sort of breezes through stuff and sorts it out and then off they fly in the tardis at the end of the story um there's not a great sense of jeopardy there's no massive 
you know, galaxy-spanning conspiracy or whatever, you know. It's just the Doctor having a real fun adventure uh, where the, you know, the stakes are comparatively uh, low by sort of Doctor Who standards. And yeah, you can just tell how much he's enjoying this. Yeah, both of these stories, I think, have the Doctor at sort of a remove from the emotion of the action. But it's a lot, he's having a lot more fun in this one. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> yeah like, understand, understandably so. Not, yeah, but in both of them, I think, it's an interesting choice to have Paul McGann's Doctor, like, not like be very like sort of this is just a fun adventure for me and i am not really selling into the weight of it which i think is it's a contrast when i act on the main range for sure and yeah i don't know if that's intentional but it is it definitely is interesting um and i think that's why it's important to have lucy miller to ground him i think sheridan smith is very strong in this story in both stories we'll get to that eventually i think she is like Again, just like a very fun presence to be around. But for most of it, he's really with Claire Buckfield as Spring Hill Sophie, who's also like a really good match for him in terms of energy. Yeah, she's got the same kind of energy, I think, that uh, that Lucy Miller has. And that's, I think, yeah. partly why the, the character works so well with the Doctor. It's, it's uh, given that it is the first season, uh, first episode of the season, it is maybe slightly surprising that the Doctor and Lucy don't spend a little bit more time together. But given that we have, a, you know, a, a, I was going to say adequate, that's, again, I keep damning with faint praise. Um, given that we have a more than adequate replacement um, in, in Spring-Heeled Sophie, that works fine. And, and Claire Buckfield gives a great performance. Sheridan Smith gives a great performance. But it also gives um, Lucy the opportunity to sort of go off and, and explore. And given how the last season ended and given her kind of having been co-opted into that whole season as it were it's kind of it's almost the first opportunity we get with lucy that she can sort of strike out on her own she can do her own little bits of investigating try to figure out what's going on so when she's you know trying to get across the river early on in the story and 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 uh, you know working out the different time zones and how they function and all that kind of stuff it's it's nice to see her with that kind of um exploratory head on mm -hmm. if you like that she can go out and do a little bit of adventuring by herself and she doesn't need to always have the doctor to sort of lead her around by the hand so um although it is slightly odd that, that um the doctor and lucy are are separated for so much of the story it is also just nice to have uh lucy go off and and just be able to get on with things yeah i i think it's it's a sign of how strong the character has grown over the last sort of season that like there's this confidence in like that she can do her own thing and i do think i mean as much as i would love more spring-heeled sophie i think you're right with them having such similar energies it's probably for the best she didn't stick around it, yeah. it's like so like easy to almost mix them up in the dialogue scenes when they're together but yeah i think it's a i, def I definitely think we got a good amount of time with that character i think it was nice to have the time with her that we did yeah, I don't really know what else started to say. I don't feel like we've really done it justice, but at the same time, I don't also know what else to say. It's like it's a really good story. Like I would recommend this to someone if they were asking my opinion, which I suppose that is the case. Um, but it's just a really, it's just a really enjoyable story, mm -hmm. and it you know we often say that we would rather have something which is a a challenging failure rather than sort of. Um, familiar competence and I suppose this is familiar competence but it's also just nice sometimes to get a little bit of what it is you fancy and I kind of fancy this story sometimes it's mm -hmm. just uh, kind of hangs together sort of 
pretty well and I don't really have an awful lot yeah. more to say about it. Right, okay, now we're just talking in circles, so enough. Let's put this one to bed and let's move on to uh, Max Warp. And I will, as I sometimes do, wish you the very best of luck with this one, but would you care to give us our summary? Yeah, speaking of a very unchallenging disaster, <laughs> Max Warp has Dr. Lucy stumble upon a very obvious riff on Top Gear, but with spaceships. And But when one of the ships designed by a race called the Kith, who are at war with the, not humans, but <laughs> apparently other aliens of story. <laughs> um, I, my mic's going to the barn, but that's something different. I'm sorry, can you help me out here? Uh, no, I'm covering for the fact that I can't remember either. All right, well, while I looked that up, um, <laughs> there's a murder mystery that involves this... Because the Kith are at war with Varlon. The, Varlon, yeah. the Varlon. Varlon, thank you. The Kith are at war with the Varlon. Um, this threatens to sort of spark that war up again. The Doctor is on the case to try to solve it. And then he sort of gets entwined with all of these sort of characters in this world. But then the Kith ambassador is attacked. He declares war. He flees. Um, the Kith battlefield is disabled. The doctor is able to warn them of this, figure out that it was one of the hosts, Jeffrey Vantage, who was behind all of it, and that both the assassinated host and uh, actually faked his death along with the ambassador. So everything is tied with a neat bow and the culprit is taken away. Good. Yeah. Now, listeners might gather um, that it, uh, it, it, it could be potentially uh, perceived that our inability to remember something as straightforward as one of the aliens' names in, in this uh, would be uh, terribly unprofessional of us as podcasters to not even be able to get a detail like that right. But the truth is, neither of us did, and there's a very good reason for that. This is just so bad, and it's so hard to care about any of it, and I think that's kind of mm -hmm. why it's so hard to remember any of the actual details. And the thing is, We've talked many times now um, about the failures of, of Big Finish when it comes to doing sort of the comedy episodes. And this this is the mother load. This is the, this is the lodestone for everything that they kind of get wrong. But um, the only thing I would say, like, I, I mean, it's aged like milk. I mean, it wasn't great when it was originally released. You know, this, this is back in 2008. So doing like a, a satire is far, far too kind of word for it, but doing a satire of, of, of Top Gear might have felt faintly relevant, although I don't ever remember feeling that when I first listened to it. Uh, but now it's just, oh, it's just so irrelevant. And this it just has that kind of built-in obsolescence. It, it wasn't funny or worthwhile when Top Gear was like really like a peak kind of cultural phenomenon, it is nowhere near being that now. So this just serves no function at all. Yeah. I mean, to get to why I couldn't come with the name with Barlon, I think there's just such a failure of imagination in this story. I mean, they do a good job describing the Kith, a race I had no trouble recalling because of that fact, like fleshing out that they're sponge creatures, they're talking about fronds. They paint a good picture there. But are the other ones, are they just humans? It's very unclear. There's just not a lot of attention to detail with what is going on. It's a lot of broad strokes. And when they reveal that the um, killed pilot is a Kith agent, like there's a very big moment of confusion where 
well, he's on the cover as a human, but was he supposed to be a sponge the whole time and we didn't know it? It's or is yeah. he a is he double is he like an agent as in he is Varlon but and by race, but he is um working for the kith? It's so unexplained. And there there's and that's just all over the story. There's so many things that are just nonsense, and that is um like horrible. Like for a murder mystery <laughs> where genre where it's very much about attention to detail and having things come together in a satisfying way. Yeah, and I have to slightly correct something I said when we were talking about Dead London. I said it was around 50 minutes, which is uh, apparently untrue. Apparently it's 70 minutes, uh, which is fine. It's an hour mm. and 20. Um, and uh, this one is, is, oh, fractionally longer. It's 73 minutes, a whole three minutes more. It feels so much longer than three extra minutes from the last story. It just becomes interminable. And I think it's a really weird thing for Jonathan Morris to get wrong. Like we've talked about Jonathan Morris before in the podcast, and he's a good writer. You know, he's written some uh, great uh, prose. He's written some great Big Finish stuff. He's a really solid kind of good Doctor Who writer. And for things to have gone so tragically off kilter for for this one is you know i mean everybody can have an off day but this is really an off day and it's just hard to imagine the, the thing is okay no i was gonna say it's hard to imagine why this happened that's not true the fact that this is not the first time that we have come up against how terrible big finish kind of comedies are is i suppose in a way our problem i mean they keep producing them so I assume there must be a market for them. Like if they did like the one doctor or whatever and it was hated, they would never do another story like that. But there's loads of stories which are like that. Not ones that we'll ever cover because they're all dreadful. But you know, there are plenty of stories like that. And Max Warp kind of falls into that sort of tradition. Uh, you know, the kind of lame um, sort of parody, you know, about the level of kind of epic movie and, and those, those, you know, dreadful terrible terrible films uh you know it's about that level of sophistication and humor um uh, but there's obviously a market for them because otherwise they wouldn't keep knocking them out um so i suppose in a way like this is the this is the closest i can possibly come to finding um anything even approaching a sort of redemptive read on this and it's, I, in a way it's really our problem because we can't stand this stuff but clearly somebody does because they keep making ones like this mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> I, don't, I think the problem is i'm not even convincing myself here i think the problem is you need someone who actually enjoys top gear to write a good top gear parody and that's just what it comes down to and it doesn't sound like jonathan morris has a high opinion of it at all and <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, my relationship with Top Gear is my parents loved it for a time when they, they had binged a lot of it. And then the hosts left and now they watch James May's travel show. And so it was on in the background when I still lived at home. And I happened, I sort of am aware of the vibe. I thought, I, and again, these are years old, hazy members of something I was half watching. But I don't feel like it was as openly sexist as Jonathan Morris <laughs> makes it out to be. I mean, maybe can... It's an exaggeration, but it's not. It's yeah. not a big exaggeration. Not a big exaggeration, okay. But still, it's like there's so much hate for the show here, but it just comes down to the same three jokes all the time. Like, there's three things that annoy about this show, and he just hits them with a hammer over and over again. There's no depth to it. 
So, and that's sort of what I mean. Like, like you contrast, like say Mel Brooks taking on like Westerns and hammer horror films, genres he is over the moon for. Um, and it shows with like every like sort of fiber of those movies. And that's just sort of like the two ends of the scale of how successful a parody can be. <laughs> I really think you need to actually know what you're talking about when you want to go after something. Otherwise you want a story like this, where it's just the same bits over and over again and thinking you're clever for it. I mean, I think you can do like a, a takedown or a parody of something that you, you can't stand. Um, but it has to be a lot more kind of venomous and sharp than this is. This is just lame jokes about political correctness or, you know, um, dismissive attitudes towards women. I mean, you don't... I mean, it's not even that... It's not even really kind of parodying or satirizing that. I mean, that's just, like I said, it's, it might be an exaggeration, but it's a tiny exaggeration. And, you know, like a very obvious kind of Jeremy Clarkson stand-in. I mean, he's still you know, makes his bread and butter for making, um, you know, very outrageous statements. And one of the reasons that he's he's kind of a very frustrating figure is it's very clear uh, that Jeremy Clarkson is, is actually quite an intelligent man, but he knows that by being kind of an offensive oaf, he can make money. And so that's what he does. He, he did a program once about, sorry, I'm slightly off topic here, just in a desperate attempt to sort of pad this out. Uh, but he did a program once about Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who's an absolute hero of mine, um, for a, a, a show that I think it was like the 100 Greatest Britons or something like that, one of those kind of shows. And he did this program and it was incredibly well researched and he was very sincere and genuine and just clearly a very smart well put together man it's logical that somebody who's interested in cars and mechanics would be interested in an engineer like like brunel so you know there's an obvious connection there but it was just a really well-made program um and so it's one of the reasons i kind of have such contempt for him as an individual is that he's so clearly capable of doing things which are good and worthwhile and smart and he just sells the whole lot out because by being a kind of oafish sexist pig he can you know rake in the money that's his kind of um that's his shtick if you like um and that's oh fine okay whatever that's that's what he does um but max warp has nothing to say about that other than pointing out that the thing he is is the thing he is i mean that's not even satire it's not even parody it's just oh this guy that seems like a sexist oaf is a sexist oaf well all right, but where does that get us? And the answer is 70 minutes of really, really boring drama. It's just, I don't know. It's just, like I said, if you, you could do it from a place of hatred, but it has to be so much sharper and better written than this is. Right. Yeah. So it has to pick, a, has to pick one direction or the other, yeah. essentially. And I mean, I, I alluded to this before, but the doctor is just so checked out in the story. <laughs> like, and... Like in the last episode, he's sort of detached from reality but in a very fun way, and it's like, oh, seeing this problem as an adventure and things like that. This is like, he's just very callous and rude most of the story, which is very off-putting for Paul McGann. Yeah, I mean, like last story, he he had that kind of like we were saying, he has that kind of uh, sort of breezy, easy charm about him, which makes it all so enjoyable and and such an easy sort of thing to uh, spend time with. But here, you can. Like, this is really unusual for Paul McGann, but you can kind of hear him struggling to put that enthusiasm, uh, you know, into the role. I mean, he almost never does that. And I think one of the the reasons for that is that the Doctor just feels kind of out of character here. Like, the idea that the Doctor can geek out over something 
is perfectly fine. We've seen him do that hundreds of times before. Um, even William Hartnell did it, and, and certainly Jodie Whittaker still does. Um, it's it's part of the character, but like like all these kind of cliche um, kind of you know the excitement of of seeing a spaceship part or whatever just doesn't at all feel like it belongs to this doctor i don't know like maybe you could do it with david tennant maybe he could geek out over spaceships but like that just doesn't feel like it's part of the eighth doctor's character at all mm-hmm. and so whilst the, the you know the writing is clearly sort of moving it towards that kind of that geeky enthusiasm and all the rest of it it just doesn't fit and you can hear paul mcgann really struggling to like put that enthusiasm in and that's so unusual for him yeah it's it's a really off performance and then getting to our other lead um i think the a good canary in the coal mine for a quality of an eighth doctor adventure story is how much respect the writers treat lucy miller <laughs> yep. and this one does not treat her with much respect at all like like she can be like you can write a character who is not quite book smart well and make her still like very like entertaining clever and like then contribute a lot to the story but jonathan morris i guess doesn't see the value in any of that because she just sort of hangs around in the story and is there to be a punching bag for a lot of characters which is very unfortunate yeah and it's definitely not sheridan smith's fault because she's again she's she's doing her best but i mean what she's supposed to do with material that just you know, sticks her in that place and then sort of leaves her there. There's, there's not really an awful lot she can do to get a handle on anything. Yeah, it's very unfortunate because, yeah, she's so good. She's, like, easily the best part of the story, her performance. But it's stuck doing nothing. Like, it's stuck in plots that don't go anywhere and being she's, like, not seeing the truth and the Doctor's figuring things out behind her back. Nothing is, like, yeah, it's it's such a meaningless role for her to be in and in all of this one of the things that annoys (laughs) this is this is a personal thing but one of the things that annoys me most about this story is that our um our jeremy clarkson stand-in jeffrey vantage oh they must have been up all night thinking of that one um Mm -hmm. it's played by graham garden and i love graham garden i absolutely adore the man and i have done since i was a wee boy uh, he was in the goodies I, I love i'm sorry i haven't a clue which of course he's a regular on um he's just this amazing funny um slightly waspish sense of humor he's just such an amazing guy that i have just like an infinite amount of respect for this is his first big finish appearance it won't be his last but this is his first big finish appearance and this is what they have given him to do. It's, ah, oh, it's just so painful. It's, I just, yeah, I love the man. And to see him have to suffer through this kind of, you know, sixth generation photocopy of a, an alleged satire that might once have been funny 15 years ago, it's just torture. It's really difficult for me to listen to. Yeah, um, I, unfortunately, there is one more uh, appearance he had before this, and that is, Banga Banga Boom. Oh, God, yeah, I forgot he was in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Speaking no. of bad Big Finish comedy. Yeah, 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 you're right. No, I, I, uh, yeah, you're, you're completely correct. Sorry, this is his second Big Finish performance. Um, uh, but my point still stands. It's still terrible to listen to somebody you are one respects uh, stuck doing this this stuff. And yeah, yeah, Bang Banga Boom, that says it all. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's other things that, that we should touch on, but like, like all the political satire is not 
also not satire. Like a politician that only listens to a yeah, a politician that only listens to a robot that gives uh, spin doctor advice. Okay, hilarious. Like what? Like yeah. What else is there? Like there's nothing. I guess there's not really much else we can talk about. <laughs> well, I mean, we. I suppose we ought to talk about the fact that it try the script tries to perform a kind of dogleg from having been a slightly lame. Top Gear, not slightly labor, completely lame Top Gear parody um, into being an Agatha Christie mystery. And it cannot pull off that uh, spin at all. It, it, in fact, it would have crashed into a moon. It just, it can't pull off that sort of sudden change in direction. It, it wants to be uh, one thing and then about three quarters of the way through it, it just stops being that. Decides it wants to be an Agatha Christie mystery. Nobody dies. And then everybody stands around in the drawing room explaining the plot at the audience as if anybody left cares. It's a weird sort of turn. I don't, it doesn't come from anywhere and it doesn't go there either. Yeah. It, I mean, it doesn't come from anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere is a good description of this entire story. <laughs> I, I don't think others just want to talk about this anymore. It's <laughs> fine. Yeah. And there'll just be a short episode this week because, uh, yeah, that's just how it is. But we're not completely done yet. We have recommendations. So, uh, JG, why don't you start? Okay, sure. Um, so I'm going to recommend a book this week. Uh, and I'm going to recommend How Music Works by David Byrne. Sure, I don't have to tell people David Byrne, obviously. Uh, Frontman for Talking Heads, and actually, um, well, he's been a solo artist much longer than, than Talking Heads were together. Um, but he released this book, um, I think 10, maybe 12 years ago. Um, that's sort of neck of the woods. And it's phenomenal. It's a really fascinating book. It's, uh, it comes from um, Byrne's very kind of singular perspective, I suppose you would say. But for anybody that sort of enjoys music or likes music, it, it's it's just such a, a worthwhile read. It, it's not in any way about sort of the formalizations of music. It's just kind of sort of talking about music, I suppose, really. So some of it obviously um, is about his own career, both in Talking Heads and his solo career. Uh, some, is, some of it is about the origins of music. Some of it is about technology. Um, so it's kind of, it rambles a bit, but that's also one of its charms. It's, it's a, a lovely kind of um, exploration of what music is and how it impacts people and, and just how it kind of, how it works, but not in a, 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 a formal way in terms of um, writing or, or any of that. It's just about uh, uh, sort of a literary exploration of what music is. Um, and it's incredibly refreshing because it's not in any way... Firstly, it's not an, at all um, uh, a biography or an autobiography. Obviously, there are autobiographical details in it because he's a musician. But, you know, he can discuss, um, you know, the origins of music in Africa and he can discuss MIDI software and he can discuss um, the way that Kabuki theatre influenced Stop Making Sense and all this kind of stuff. So it's really, it's, it's, there's a huge amount of, sort of stuff which is covered in it. And it's all done in this incredibly non-egotistical way. It's not about him as such. It's just about exploring the way that he, he interacts with music, I suppose, and the way that everyone does. And there's such a, obviously there's such a love and, and sort of passion about music uh, but sort of above and beyond that it's incredibly refreshing about how realistic it is it's very 
unromantic. So often, for example, when you talk about like Talking Heads early days in, in, in New York City and, you know, uh, the Mug Club and, and CBGBs and all these places, it tends to get very romanticized and, and kind of, you know, that kind of um, uh, very, oh, you know, we were poor, but we were working musicians and all the rest of it. And he doesn't have any of that. It's like the Bowery was a disaster area. It was a hellhole. Nobody wanted to be there. The streets were littered with junkies and it was an absolute nightmare. And we had no heating in the winter and it was a ghastly, awful place to live. It's just so refreshing to come across something that is so... Yeah, unromanticized. It's so honest about what it is. It's not building it up as this kind of great, grandiose narrative. It's just a realistic description of how the situations were. And he does that all the way through. So when he talks about um, uh, seeing performances in Bali or when he talks about seeing uh, rock concerts in London, it's done with the same kind of clear-eyed um, honesty, I suppose. Um, and it strips all that kind of artifice away and it's just a really just this amazing kind of way of talking about music that just feels very different to the way that most people write about me I've written a lot about music myself I'm a musician I've been in a band I play all the rest of it and it's just so lovely to come across a book like this from somebody who who could really write that sort of you know romanticized nature and and uh, doesn't instead chooses a much more kind of intellectually honest way of talking about music and particularly when he talks about stuff like uh, orange of origins of music in Africa and um, the way that um, sort of very non-Western music has been an influence. It is again just that very refreshing clear-eyed appreciation of something it never feels like it's cultural appropriation it never feels dishonest in a way that to take one example say sting might or or, or graceland by paul simon could be perceived that way it's very kind of um you know culturally acquired shall we say uh, but it, it never feels like that when it's it's david byrne he's he's very i don't want to say that those people aren't genuine but it still has that whiff of exploitation about it somehow um, whereas it never does and you know David Byrne is very committed to it so it's not just like a one and done you know he's set up his own world music label and he's helped support artists and it, it's, it's something which feels very much to the core of who he is and that's so much of that honesty and that truth comes through in his writing here I cannot recommend this book highly enough it is just an astonishing read he's uh, got a very kind of um bright style I suppose you would say it's not a funny book but it's just incredibly engaging and 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 sort of vivid in the way that he he talks about music um and you know sometimes it's really weird stuff sometimes it, like he talks about the musicality of animals which is a really weird like like bird song and stuff it's just like it's not the sort of thing you would normally get in a book like this and that's exactly what makes it so worthwhile. It's a phenomenal piece of work and it deserves a lot more attention than I think it, it gets. It was very well reviewed when it was released, but I don't think people really talk about it very much. And that's a terrible shame because it is an absolutely sort of fascinating uh, piece and I cannot recommend it uh, highly enough. So that's How Music Works uh, by David Byrne. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm a big fan of David Byrne's uh, film work. I Stop Making Sense is one of my favorite movies of all time. And... I think uh, True Stories and his recent one, American Utopia, are also great. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah nobody yeah. nobody likes true stories, and I think it's great. So I was really, really pleased to hear somebody else say that, because it mostly just gets slagged off. I think it's fabulous, so I'm very pleased to hear you say that. And yeah, that's like, like Stop Making Sense. Obviously, it's a, a Stone Cold classic, but like all the stuff about the way that Kabuki Theatre influenced it and, and uh, all that kind of stuff, I just didn't know. And when you hear it, you think, oh, <laughs> that makes perfect sense, but it doesn't demystify it. In fact, it does the opposite. It adds... To your appreciation of the work and that's such a great skill to have you know we're revealing more detail adds rather than subtract so it's it's just it's lovely i i just think it's such a fabulous book yeah that that does sound fantastic um i'm going to since we talked about a murder mystery that was extremely unsatisfying i'm going to talk about a murder mystery story that is extremely satisfying uh, i'm going to talk about a video game for available for PC Switch and yes, PlayStation, called AI the Somnium Files. Uh, very wordy title, but it is a the best visual novel is the name for the genre, but I don't think that term really has a lot of purchase in like uh, non-Japanese countries. But it's essentially, yeah, it's uh, a lot of words with pictures and characters voicing the lines. It's a very text-heavy game, but broken up with some gameplay sub uh, aspects. Essentially, you play as a detective, Konami Date, in a sort of nearish future, Japan. Uh, your buddy is a cybernetic eye, having lost his eyes and his memories a few years ago. And the eye by the name of Aiba is a really great uh, just computer in fiction great buddy cop in fiction. They have such a fun dynamic. It's like it's two great characters trying to solve a series of murders that happen that have resonance to killings that happened a few years ago. It interacts with a bunch of characters. I can't really say more without spoiling it, but I will say a couple of things about the game is uh, it's from a writer and director, Kotaro Uchikoshi, who if you've heard of the Zero Escape games, sort of um, other sort of games in that sort of visual novel style uh, that were very well acclaimed. He's behind those. And both those games, which I also love in this one, uh, are in the style, like, like I said, lot, lots of texts, a lot of sort of dialogue options that sort of work you through the story. And then Punctuate would be sort of escape the room games. Like, you know, you'd play on like Flash on websites in, like years ago, where you have like a bunch of objects in the room and you click on them and see what they do and try to get out of a room. Uh, the Zero Escape games are much more straightforward about that. But with Somnium Files, the way you get into those sort of sections is the other piece in your future tech is Date has his ability to go through a machine and enter subject's dreams when he hits a wall in there in his interrogation. And then so these sort of puzzles take on a sort of dream logic to them. Uh, plucking a flower will make a tree grow taller or something like that. And so it's a lot of experimentation and fun trial and error trying to work your way through these sort of puzzles. But uh, first and foremost, it's just a great story with great characters. It's an extremely satisfying mystery, has a lot of twists and turns. And there's a little bit of like branching paths, Chino's own adventure story with it, but with a definitive ending. But the way it uses that is very, I think, fun and innovative. It's yeah, it's just a very well-written story. Um, some of the humor doesn't work so well for me, and I think it, it's very—it's a little slow to start. 
but I recommend it if uh, you want to giving it a go. If you if that sort of sort of style of video game appeals to you, because yeah, I just absolutely loved it by the end of it, and I was so satisfied with how it wrapped up. Fantastic! Thanks very much. It does sound very cool. It, it sounds sort of slightly um, abstract. Um, yeah, and I think that's such a great thing for those kind of games to be. Yeah, the abstractness it works really well, and I think it really helps like create a very like fun and mind bending sort of story. Like, and that that's just sort of this writer's style is to sort of get into the more of the pseudo scientific in order to tell something that is like that really sort of knocks you on your heels when sort of revelations come out. It's yeah, it like really recommend this really recommend the zero escape series It's a series of three games that are all about sort of pseudoscience mixed with like saw kind of atmosphere like in like the film series saw um yeah i won't get into much detail of those but yeah it's just fantastic and yeah i really recommend and i have a lot more murder mystery uh visual novel video games to recommend if that ever comes up brilliant oh that sounds awesome thank you very much yeah. um yeah fantastic um, well, I think we can probably um, leave it there for this week. Uh, we're actually coming in with a relatively short episode this week after having uh, had our, our running time go up and up and up. So we're actually coming in decently this week, which is fantastic. So, um, yeah, I think we can probably uh, leave it there for now. Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? All right. You can email us at TalkingWhoToYou at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. Uh I'm on Twitter at K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R, Kev Kozer, and you can find more JG's writings at jgmcquarry.scott, that is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and whatever podcast you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, next time we will be remaining with the Eighth Doctor and we'll be doing the next two stories in the second season. So that means we're going to be covering Brave New Town and the Skull of Sobek. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>